to the Sober Grind! Welcome, everyone. We sadly missed you last week, but we're back. What and happened last week that we missed them? I flew back in. I was on vacation. Okay. It was, it was thanks. It was the week after Thanksgiving. And you are? I'm Pej. I'm Austin. It's a pleasure. Good Welcome. to be back. Good to be back. Today, we're talking about more a deep dive into enabling. How people enable, why people enable, some of the dangers and why it's more hurtful than helpful, even though that it can seem helpful in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Where do you want to get started here? I want to, there's a lot I want to say about this. Um, we always talk about this topic, you know, I mean, it's always somehow, most of our topics are in relation to the enabling of uh, addicts and alcoholics. And um, you know I'm on the front line, and I'm not, not just on the front line working with the addicts and alcoholics um, personally, whether it be in a group setting or one-on-one, -on -one. but um, I work with a lot of the families, mm -hmm. and I see a lot of sickness out there. When they talk about family dynamics, people don't, some people know that have been around, and some people don't know that. It's not just the addict and alcoholic that has the issue, but more importantly, it's the family and the family dynamics that surrounds the issue with the addict alcoholic. There's a lot of times I don't blame for people, I don't blame people that keep on going in and out of treatment centers for doing so, mm -hmm. or for being caught up in their addiction. It is more deep rooted, and that that's whoever surrounds them. And whenever somebody is enabling them, um, knowingly or unknowingly, what they really don't realize is that they're, they're the problem. They put the fuel in the fire of the addict or the alcoholic. Um, yet, so you're, you're a lot, of, sorry to cut you off. But sure, you, cut me off you, anytime. You, you do a lot of interventions. I do a lot I'm of interventions. I'm sure a lot of these elements come up during the intervention Absolutely, process. all of the time, all of the time. Mm. There's um, people that feel like they can't help their loved one uh, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, they've had countless failed attempts in trying to get them the proper help. They sometimes will try to do the intervention themselves. They have no skills in doing an intervention. They might yeah. hear stuff or see stuff on that one television show that has to do with sure. interventions. And so they try to, you know, kind of just do their own thing. And there's a lot that comes with that. Like if the person is part of the problem and then they want to try to fix the problem, when they're part of it and they don't have the skills or they don't know how to do it, they continue to make the problem worse and worse. Now, as an interventionist, when I'm called in to come in and help and do the work, what I really need is for the family to be on board and to follow my lead. Mm -hmm. Because if we're on board on the same page in trying to do the actual intervention and they follow through with whatever could happen, whether the intervention, there's never a failed intervention. There's always, you know, as, as long as the attempt is there and the person is addressed and the talk of getting help is there, then, you know, a, a seed can be planted. Because then, yeah. then we know that the, the, the IP, you know, the person who's actually the one who we're trying to help out, knows that the intended patient will, will know that um, there is a problem and people are worried about you and we want to try to get you the help. But the problem is, is the people that are worried about them that initiated this whole intervention that are part of this intervention need to be on board and follow through all the way or else it won't go the way it should. What are some of the adversities that you typically see when they don't follow your guidance? Well, they'll, you tell them to do A, B, and C in the beginning, they're, they're all about it. They want yeah. to do it. They, they sit down, they write the letters, they go through with the whole process, but it's in those moments 
the painful moments, the emotional mm. moments, and it can become an emo emotionally draining. A lot of people ask me, how do you do interventions, man? I don't even know how you do it, Pej, because it, it could be painful. And truly, like, for some people, it is draining. People experience burnout because they cannot, uh, they don't, they have to go into so many different family settings and deal with so many family dynamics that often the person along the way, one of the family members might just fold and say, you know what? Mm. Uh, I don't want to kick them out on the street. I can't do it. You know what I mean? And they don't yeah, realize. Hard. And that's one thing that a lot of people don't realize. And I, I'm going to just say this. I'm going to be totally transparent today. Please. Uh, I'm going to say it. And brutal I, honesty is what it is brutal. we need. I have world. to be brutally honest about this. A lot of people hate my guts. because I Who tell could them, hate you? Well, they hate my guts because I tell them the truth. I'm going to say this. Um, whenever people enable, whenever people practice codependency, this is a selfish act because mm -hmm. they are trying to make themselves feel good. They will not feel whole or complete unless they're fixing their addict or their alcoholic, unless they're the helicopter mom or dad that's hovering over that individual. And if they keep on trying to think that they're they're able to be effective in helping that person, they're not realizing that by keeping them, whether they put them back in their house, where that's usually the lion's den, or putting them from place to place to place to place, but overseeing the whole thing and thinking that they have to have a hand in everything and thinking that they have to constantly be the one that rescues them when something goes wrong or staying in communication with them, constant communication while the person's supposed to be in treatment getting treated for their right. illness, then they, they ruin the whole plan. And, and, and more often than none, I have to tell the person, I, I gotta back away. I, I, can't be as I can't be as attached to their loved one as they are. When they're enmeshed, yeah. um, you know, they're ruining the process. If they just back away and let the professional do the work. When I come in as an interventionist, it's to try to intervene and help this person get into a different type of setting and take them out away from the family dynamics, the sickness that's within these families. Take them away from that and then put them into a place where they're safe. And usually where I put them, there is no communication. They're not able to, to call their mom and dad and say, come and pick me up and get me out of this place and this place is this way and that place, way and the food's bad and this, that and the other. They'll come up with a million excuses. Addicts and alcoholics are pro-manipulators. The reason that they, the reason that the, the person who's codependent or the enabler, the, the reason that they have their way with you is because they know what to say and do to keep mm -hmm. pulling the wool over your eye. And they, that, that's what they do to nurture their disease. They're not bad people. Mm -hmm. They're just doing stuff to nurture their disease, whether it be using and drinking. And they're going to tell you everything that you want to hear. They're going to tell you, I'm going to stay sober. They're going to tell you, I need help. But truth, truth be told is that in reality, you are part of the problem if you're the enabler. That's a good point you brought up. And I, I want to ask you about um, how to switch the mindset within that individual. But we have a couple comments here, uh, a couple questions. I want to encourage everyone that's Ask watching questions. or listening, whether you have questions about en enabling or interventions or substance abuse, please feel free to, to let us know any questions right now. Uh, or afterwards, you can always email us at austinorpege at beginningstreatment.com mm -hmm. and we'd be happy to answer you. Yes. Um, so Nicole says, I would rather hurt your feelings than watch you die. That's what I tell my sponsors. I love it. At that point, it literally becomes loving them to death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Loving them to death. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So from personal experience, let's just talk about this. So my mother, for the longest time, was hovering. She was 
codependent. She was a controller. She had to make sure that her son was constantly fixed. She always provided the space, the home, to mm -hmm. harbor her addict alcoholic son. Mm -hmm. A place where I did a lot of using. I used in the bathroom. I used in the backyard. I used in my bedroom. Mm -hmm. And did she ever know? No, she didn't want to know. But, and I'd make sure that I would use different utensils and different devices to try to cover up my addiction. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it would be a toilet paper roll that I would put like fabric softener in just to blow out smoke so that the smell of the smoke of whatever I was smoking wasn't actually evident. You know yeah. what I mean? So, so this lady, she would often find me passed out behind the wheel in front of her house with one leg dangling outside of the car and one dangling on the inside and me just laid out cold. Now, would she come and say, let's get you help? No, she'd say, come in the house. I can't let the neighbors see you like that. Therefore, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to keep you in my house. I don't want anybody to know about this because people will think that you're a drug addict and heaven forbid, if anyone finds out that my son is a drug addict, then my, I would be embarrassed. So here yeah, you have a person who's codependent, right? An enabler and embarrassed because if she gets exposed and people know that, then they'll think that she has failed in being a true mother to me, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one example. The other is, is and, I, and as long as I know that my mom as, an, as a practicing addict will allow me to live in her house, it keeps me from getting desperate. So right. she never allows me to actually grow. People that keep on, people that haven't lost everything, people that aren't completely desperate, whether it be physical things, you know, like the home, the house, the car, all that stuff. When you have a spiritual bottom, if you don't hit that bottom, and there's always a, every bottom has a trap door. Going to jail could be seen as a bottom, right? Mm -hmm. Going homeless could be seen, seen as a bottom. But a lot of homeless people are on drugs and a lot of people are on jail yeah. that, are, that are on drugs. So uh, the people who are constantly... Now, here's what I love. This is what I see quite often. Actually, I wish I would see it more often is when a family member cuts off their kid completely, whether they start to get educated or get the knowledge or somebody teaches them how to go to, and I'm gonna say this straight up, to Al-Anon or mm -hmm. to Naranon, when they actually are able to go to these type of meetings and see that they have other people in those meetings that have loved ones that are either suffering or people that are recovered from their own codependency and their own untreated Al-Anonism, mm -hmm. right? When they actually start working on themselves, and I'm saying this stuff because these are, I can't, if I don't talk about it, then how will people know, right? right? And, and uh, so when they go in there, it, as much as the person would like their kids to get well, they need to get well. And even if their kid never gets well, at least they can get well and they can realize, they can see that most of the time, and I know they have good intentions. Everybody loves their children, but how do you want to love them? Somebody, uh, we just saw somebody say, we love them to death literally. When, when, the when my mom finally got enough knowledge on what she had been doing wrong and what she needs to do right, the day I called her, which was one of the many other times that I had called her and asked her for help, she was in Boston. Mm -hmm. I was drying out on somebody's couch uh, who was enabling me, like some so-called friend, right, a lower companion. Meanwhile, I'm the lower companion. Mm -hmm. I called my mom. What does every so-called gangster do when they run out of options? They call their mommy. I called my mom and I said, Mom, please help me. I promise you I'll stay sober. Please just help me this one last time. I swear, let me just come back home, stay at your house. And she said, no, son, no. I love you. I've been loving you for a long time. You've made this, these empty promises to me. 
over and over again, your words are empty to me. And she said this, and this one hurts, but it went right into my heart. She said, you're dead to me. Wow. So if you want to get help, here's a phone number and you'll call them. But the way I love you, if I continue to love you like that, I'll love you to death. Mm. Nicole just said that, right? Why is it that some of us people in the recovery community that have seen this time and time again understand that? And we understand it, but it's also our our ultimate duty to try to teach that to parents. Now, just like 98% of the addicts and alcoholics that come into recovery don't stay sober and 2% do, I think the same percentage is is in relation to family members. Okay? So how... How can you help? So you mentioned uh, Al-Anon, Naranon, mm-hmm. educating yourself. Right. What are some other things that you would advise to parents that are struggling with this? They can't make that difficult choice to, to say to their, their loved one that, that you're dead to me, you're cut off. This is a great question. They, so let me tell you this. This is what I'm starting to think. Um, I, I love working with addicts and alcoholics. I love working on the front lines. But it's, only, it's one thing to work with them. It's another to not being able to get through to them because... They're still being enabled, even while in a treatment setting. Mm. Okay, so we can work with we can work with the rotten fruit that's hanging from the tree, or we can go into the roots of the tree. The deep. Mm. Where is it coming from? How is? Where does it stem from? It stems from the family, right? So I was talking to my dear friend Taryn Pickett this morning, and we're thinking about putting on and, and you're going to help me out with this too because I'd love to I don't know job. what it is but I'm we, down. Uh, what we want to do is 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 build something within our community where okay. we have a family program where uh, we can educate families and we oh yeah a workshop we need to be doing if you will more. you yeah. know workshops let's where, do it but see it's about how do you get them to come so yeah. we'll, we'll figure that out well, and we I mean there's never here's here's my thing. marketing I told I told Taryn this morning I said just like there's never a shortage of addicts and alcoholics there's a lot of people that are on drugs and alcohol and have a problem with it on a national level in our nation mm-hmm. there's never a shortage of sick parents mm-hmm. or sick loved ones who who enable people so if we can actually get through to more people that are going through it, I mean, then we don't have to send them to my friend Margie Fleetman's organization called Solace, which is mothers and fathers that have actually lost their kids, yeah. okay? The, those are the grieving groups of the dying, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this is, I have a passion for recovery, but like, it's not just towards the, the, the addict and alcoholic in active addiction or the ones that are attempting to get sober. It's about helping families. Do you remember, on, I don't know if you ever watched the TV show Intervention, but they actually have, sent, yeah. they sent some of the parents to this place, I believe it was in Tennessee or something like that, where it was a, like a place solely for codependency. Mm. Like intensive treatment for family members to get them to stop enabling their kids. Now, why do I have this passion? So I have these frustrating conversations with family members where they're totally on board with me. They totally want me to help their kid, you know, and I'll start working with their kid, but all of a sudden they come back into the picture and they somehow will either give them money or, or, feed off of what they're telling them, their complaints, the kid will start complaining about me, the center, or the, the type of work I'm doing with them, or that I'm not doing my job right, all these different things. I know my intention, my, I have the best intention for that child. Whether I be abrasive or harsh or hard on them, it's much different than how their coddling parents will be, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes you need that, and that's maybe that's just the environment that I grew up in. And believe me, most of the places that I send people to are they're not as as hardcore as the place that I went to. I went to a place that was they were there was a lot of imputative a- actions. Like if you messed up, you're gonna know about it. 
-hmm. You're going to learn what consequences mean, but you're also going to learn what integrity means. The problem is, is that the addict and alcoholic lacks an integrity. They don't understand integrity. They don't know it. But then again, their family members lack an integrity too. They never actually knew how to have the right type of integrity in teaching them. In a perfect world, if somebody's uh, child is using drugs, a, a parent would see that and say, in no way will I have this in my house. I will make sure that you get the proper help. If you don't want it, you're out. Mm -hmm. in, in the world of recovery, the only kind of parent that talks that way or does that is a parent who is recovering from their own addiction, whether it be codependency, mm -hmm. whether it be, um, you know, some like sure. a, like an enabling parent. I don't I don't want to use the word Al-Anon too much or AA too much because those are twelve step communities. But there are communities out there that that help people in this sense. Now I'll say this: just this last weekend, uh, my girlfriend and I. She's actually writing something right now. Hi Sol. Hi Sol. We were asked to uh, go and speak, and I'm just rambling today but I, this is stuff that's been going on with me and let it out there Pej believe me let it go today when I came to talk to you we wanted to have a show I had my topic already in mind this Perfect. is a great passion that I have in helping Sol and I were asked to go and speak somewhere okay mm -hmm. and it was at this center that was in, it was called the house of Uhuru and it was <laughs> in uh, south central LA Watts as a matter of fact which is a very low end poverty stricken area so we get to this place and I was very impressed with the place because although it was a county facility, I walked in and you know it was well kept, well, it was clean, and I come to find when I asked the receptionist at the front desk that they accept Medi-Cal. So there's treatment in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. treatment for drugs, for substance abuse, for the lower end types uh, where Medi-Cal is covered. This is yeah, that's amazing. Huge. It's really good. I know that like Tarzan, are they a large facility? They're a decent sized facility. So we went there because Al-Anon, there was this lady that was a member of Al-Anon for eight, nine years. She asked us to come down and talk. Mm -hmm. And she wanted the me, the person that's had a problem with substance abuse before, and her, the person who's been with people that have problems with substance abuse, to come down and talk on a panel. Mm -hmm. So we get there, and when I walk in, I see that there's other people in there that are on the panel along with, alongside us. One of them was, uh, there was two different mothers, right? One who had done the work and one who hadn't yet done the work was, but was starting to do the work. Mm. And you know, what? it struck me. I had like the spiritual experience. I was sitting in the room. M mind you, this room was packed to the rafters. Something we don't see down in, in the more well-to-do neighborhoods. There's right. not a sense of community in this area as I see that much. There is, but there isn't to, to, the, uh, to the amount of what I saw in this lower end community. And this was something to think about, was the fact that this was a very, this was the indigent center in a very lower end, like poverty stricken part of town, but the families had come out because these ladies, as intention that were from the Al-Anon community, wanted to bring, they said every month we're doing a family event and we want to bring people here that come and do mm. panels such as yourself to talk to the families who are currently suffering. So it was really cool. So I saw lots and lots of family members. I saw patients from this facility that were all sitting in there. And then I saw members of Al-Anon and such, right? And other people that were in recovery. So I got to do my talk. She got to do her talk. And what really got me was hearing the other ladies. Mm -hmm. So when the other, one of the other mothers, the way she was describing what, how she would enable her kid, I was like, there's no difference here. 
It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter right. if you got it going on or you don't got it going on. It doesn't matter if you, what walk of life you come from. But the way this mother was speaking, it was as if I was looking at my own mom. And she was a black lady. My mom's Persian. But they kind of, like, they looked kind of similar. But it was the description of how she behaved as an enabling mother. Mm. How she, she called herself a helicopter mom. How she said that I would put my kid into one treatment center to another. Mind you, this wasn't a high-end treatment center. Most likely she was putting it in places like the, the house of Uhuru. But point being is that that kid would tell her the same stuff that kids say in the higher-end facilities. They would call their mom, they would call their dad, and they would say things like, the food's no good here. Or they're mistreating me. Or right. they're, you know, I, I don't like this place. It's this way and that way. And then they would jump from one place to the next place to the next place to the, place, the next place. And the mom is just overseeing them like the puppeteer. Like just making sure my kid is okay. Meanwhile, guess who's untreated? The enabling mom. Yeah. What's the difference? There's no difference. That's a, that's a great segue. I want to address uh, Sol's comments here. Um, but then I, I want to continue on that. Um, Sol says, today... As an Al-Anon, let people know that if they don't work on well the field, they should worry about themselves before they get sunken in. Absolutely. They have other tools to be able to help. And while I was in the alcoholic relationship, I thought love and compassion was enough. You know, it was not enough. It was a huge codependence. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. So when it comes to codependency, like, a lot of people don't know this, but love you too, by the way. <laughs> when somebody is codependent, when somebody is enabling, what they... Here, here I'm, I'm just going to say this. You can hate me for saying this, but it's a selfish act. When somebody's constantly trying to control somebody else's life, they are addicted to their loved one. Mm -hmm. They will not feel whole or complete unless they are known to themselves and to others as being the ones who supposedly thinks they rescued. They've got their own void. They've, they've got their own hole that they need to fill. If they, if they can't be the ultimate controller and, con and make sure that that person is aligned, they won't feel complete. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if, the, if, if that individual stays sober or not, as long as they know that they're making the ultimate attempt to save and rescue. Meanwhile, they don't realize that they are going to kill their loved one. Because they, and that's what happens. All these high rates of overdoses, I mean, obviously a lot of kids are just getting their hands on pills or drugs and using them and dying because they're drugs that are deadly, right? But who's allowing that? Mm -hmm. Who's bringing them back home? Who's putting money in their pocket? Who's rescuing them off the streets and putting them into a facility rather than letting them get to the point of desperation to where they're willing enough to do anything? If they just back away, and a lot of people will say, Pej, you know, Certain people are different ways. You don't know. What if that person dies on the street? This is what I say. If somebody's dying on the street, what's the difference to them dying on the street on drugs and, be, and having the opportunity of becoming desperate as opposed to being harbored in your house, mm -hmm. shacked up in, their, in a bedroom that you provide for them and them dying in your house? Do you want them to die in your house? Sometimes some parents would rather, they know the kid's on a death mission right but they would rather that the kid die in their house or it's so sad to it's hear. very sad and yeah. that's not that's not the way life is supposed to be yeah that's not what life is about so it's all about prevention it's all about helping i know that i come off with a very strong personality about this well, but you, you know have to, and but passionate about you know why i'm passionate about it because i've been literally at several funerals they, yeah. they said when i first got sober make sure you buy a suit 
because you're going to go to lots of weddings and lots of funerals. Mm-hmm. And guess what? They weren't wrong. I go to lots mm-hmm. of weddings. That's wonderful. It's beautiful to see people that stay sober get married and have these beautiful relationships and marriages, right? But if you saw what I saw, in 11 and a half years I've been sober, I've literally gone and buried people at their gravesite where their mother is sitting by the gravesite screaming at the top of their lung, holding a portrait of their child. I mean, embracing it and crying and crying and crying and putting their hand on top of the grave. Now, lucky me, I got to be at one of these funerals with my mom. Mm -hmm. And I just held her hand and saw tears pouring down her face. Both tears of joy for being able to have her son back and also tears for the mother who has lost her kid. I'm no different. I could have been the same. The only thing that saved me, and I got to give praise to my mom for this, is that she got out of her sickness and she put limitations on me and she put her foot down and said, no more. Those words, as harsh as they may seem, you're dead to me, actually ring truth. You want to know why? Mm -hmm. Was I living? Yeah. Was I living? I was dead to her. I wasn't the son she always had. I wasn't the son that she was raising to be. I had become a dead man walking. I shouldn't even be alive. If you knew how many times I came home and heard my mom praying by her bedside in tears. I could hear her crying in her prayer that please don't let Peggy die. Please just don't let him die. And I would still hear that. Mm -hmm. But my disease had me so by the neck, like engulfed, that I would still say, I don't even want to hear that. I got to go numb out and I go get high again. What is that? Is that the way life is meant to be? No, it's not what we intended to live for. People aren't raising babies from infancy into adolescence, into young adulthood, into adulthood to become full-blown heroin addicts or fentanyl addicts or drug addicts, right? Or alcoholics for that matter. But, you know, so there's a lot to be said about this and we have only just begun. I'm hoping that eventually when we put together some organizations, we can, uh, you know, put on these family events, but not just that. Maybe one day we'll open a center in Southern California that solely deals with the family members because mm. there's some sick ones out That's there. That's a really good idea. Um, yeah, there's so much room to cover here. Uh, we have, Odie, if you could pass that a little bit further. There's a couple more questions here. So Kim Harris um, uh, says, I didn't I can drug, drug addicts to get popular, or Rick and I want to make sure that's not what you're trying to do too. When you're ready, answer a question. Let me know because I'm 35 years a mess out of it and I'm 45 days clean today. I got a lot of, so it says, sorry, I'm using my auto text and it's not behaving very well. Um, my question, one of my questions is why do you think it's becoming so popular for not just addicts, but other people to be so open to just social media? Do you think it's to get attention? You know, like YouTube, the more the likes you get, the better you get paid or however that works. I don't know. So what do you think the reason is that all of a sudden there's such an increase in all these people who think they have the right answers for addicts because I'm a 35-year meth addict, then I'm a 45 days clean and today. So I'm really curious what your answer to this is going to be because I'm a professional. This is going uh, at being an addict and, I, and when I go to somebody for their profession, they treat me terribly because I'm a meth addict or was I can't get the medicine. I need because they'll think I will abuse it and I mean that's why I want to know why people and this people saying they're going to help coming out being on Facebook and being on YouTube but in actuality in my world it's all bull nobody wants to help us okay so to my defense I'm a math addict too 
I'm a meth addict in recovery. Thank you for the question. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I think that, uh, and this, this was on our beginnings page, correct, that yeah, question? Yeah. So uh, she was asking, uh, why do so many people utilize, let's go ahead, say what she was saying. Why do people utilize the internet right now to be on YouTube channels to get more likes so that they could pretend like they're helping, but they're really not helping? Right, I think that, well, there, there might be two schools of thought here. Are, are you talking about people that are putting out uh, content on, on YouTube and on Facebook that are, that are trying to help addiction? Or are you talking about the possibly more ingrained um, topic of us as a society wanting that attention in general that's leading to further addictions? Um, two different things to, to consider there. Well, I'm not sure if, if you have an opinion on either of that. Do you think wanting more instant gratification, wanting more likes, more follows can lead towards addictive behavior because of I that instant I think it varies with different people. You know, different people have different intentions. There's sure. a lot of people that will try to get people into treatment for their own personal outcome, you know, however that may be, to line their own pockets. And then there's people that people that want to get people that help um, for their addiction or their you know substance abuse problems um, that really do it for their for the benefit of the person. Yeah, and it's it's probably hard to to fully consider all of that. I mean, if what if there's someone that is that has gone through recovery and they're trying to grow their their social media presence for their their own sheer benefit rather than actually care for the individual person. So say, you know, on YouTube you can actually generate money if you have a large following on there. So no. you don't care about the individual, but you're sharing your story from a selfish point of view. Well, I can say this much. I know that there was people there that truly cared about me, YouTube or not YouTube. And I still see those people and I still see a lot of people that they're in it to truly help. So yeah. there is help out there, you know, perhaps if you feel well, like somebody's let you down. Too. I mean, we, we put a lot of content out on, on Facebook and YouTube too. I don't know if you were addressing us or addressing others that you've seen. All of the content that we put out, these live streams are to be as helpful as possible. That's the whole intent. Yeah. That's it, you know. Um, Tim Harrington is saying, the addiction professionals cannot have it both ways. They cannot say that on one hand, the son needs to man up and become responsible and get sober. And on the other hand, say that the mom's actions are so powerful that she is to blame for his continuing action. Addiction. This tactic of connecting mom's choices to enable her son's continuing use ignores personal autonomy. It literally is saying that one human is the puppet of the other. But we know this is not the case because we know the son uses for his own reasons and the mother wants him to stop for her own reasons. It's, you know, it's... That's a great way to look at it. Obviously, you know, when an addict's using, they're using it to get high. Right. Because they may have deep-rooted issues that they're choosing not to address. So when they numb it out with drugs, they don't have to look at that stuff. They're just numb, right? But, um, you know, it could be for many different reasons that they're doing it. But obviously, uh, as I said earlier, every bottom has a trap door. Often... People that are homeless, just because they get kicked out on the street, doesn't mean that they're going to stop using drugs. Still, the problems still go unaddressed. Yeah. Um, we're also we're running a little low on time here. We're actually running a, a little late. Um, this is a, a very passionate, popular topic right now. Uh, one final question that I want to ask sure. to you that we can touch upon. And then by the way, I see you, Mickey this. Bush. Welcome back to the world. Hello. 
Love you. We addressed kind of the different ends of the spectrum. Right. The, the parent that come back to my home every single time, the mm -hmm. helicopter parent. Right. The completely cut off, you're dead to me, mm -hmm. parent. Right. What about people or parents uh, that fall in that, that middle ground that they say to themselves, you know, they have that self-talk, I'm not enabling, I kicked them out of my house, but I still buy all of their meals for them. I still help them from afar. Where does that fall and what are some of the, the guidelines that the parents or loved ones should pay attention to that they may or may not consider enabling? Um, every parent can do what they want to do. If they think that they're doing that and they're, you know, helping them minimally so that they don't starve mm -hmm. or so that they, you know, at least have a little bit of help, I still see that as enabling. It's, if, if you think that's helping them, you know, keep doing what you're doing. But if you end up having to bury your kid, then maybe you'll come to terms with the fact that that wasn't the best idea. Mm -hmm. But that's, on, that's based on the individual. Just as much as um, we would like our addicts and alcoholics to get well, we also would like the person who's enabling them to get well too. Mm -hmm. that's, that's up to them. Now, just as much as we would like the addict and alcoholic to run out of options and ask for help, we would like the parents, to, if they run out of options, to ask for help. Because there is help. And with that said, we do have that page on here called Ask an Addiction Specialist. Okay. Hi, Tina. And on that page, people can come on there and ask, you know, a specialist about, you know, if they Absolutely. have, if they have an addict alcoholic or they themselves are suffering with addiction, they can come ask a question and, and get a professional opinion. There's pros that come on there. And there's also people that, that are seasoned vets, people yeah. that are in recovery that may come and give their input too. So it's called ask an addiction specialist. I believe that it's inside of the Yep, you can find the link in the, the link. description of this video. Or you can just type it in the top part and we'll add you to the page. Yep. yep, yep, ask an addiction specialist. And ask, you know, by all means, we, this, we come in different, this show is, is in many different podcasts. Do you want to go ahead and talk about that, where it's available? Yeah, yeah, we're just trying to spread awareness to as many places as we possibly can. So we're here on, on Facebook, on YouTube. Um, you can find the audio version on iTunes, on Google Play, Spotify. Um, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, anywhere that you listen to audio podcasts. Uh, we're about 44, 45 episodes in. We've been doing this for almost a year now, if yeah. you can believe it or not. Uh, it's been an absolutely incredible journey. I've learned a ton. We've had so much incredible interaction. Um, questions and comments come in both live afterwards. We love it. So thank you all that, that are listening. Please continue to submit all of your questions. Uh, your comments, topic suggestions. If you do want to get in touch with Pej or a professional, you can always call us. Um, you can call Beginnings at 800-387-6907, 7, 24-7. You can, you can talk to a, a friendly addiction specialist or the Facebook Ask an Addiction Specialist page. And um, we'll, we'll help you out as best as we possibly can. Yeah. Just one James thing. James Coco says, hey. Hi, James. Hey, James. Coco, nice to see you. And also over here, Tina Williams, who's a good old seasoned vet and friend and uh, friend in recovery, says, enabling to the grave. Think mm -hmm. about that. This is the reality of it. 
Truly, I mean, that's what happens. The more the people enable, sometimes the person will end up dying more often than none. Uh, especially with things that people are using these days, this is serious business. If we keep on saving them and helping them, we're really actually hurting them. So it's okay to cut the umbilical cord. And with that said, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Sober grind Sober out. Grind.